Our scripture reading today will be taken from Daniel chapter 5. For those of you visiting, we are in the study of the book of Daniel, and we're working straight through the book. You've joined us today as we've come to our 13th study, and it happens to be this fifth chapter of Daniel. It's a lengthy section, but it's one whole unit, so we have to handle it as one section. So it's going to be a long section to read, but it's the most fascinating part of Daniel. So you follow along, please, as I read Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels, which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, in order that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me will be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, his face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. 
Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished to kill, whoever he wished he killed, and whomever he wished he spared alive. And whomever he wished he elevated, and whomever he wished he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven." And they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was taken out. Mene, Mene, Tekel. Uparsen. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Peretz, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple, and put a necklace of gold around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this very unusual text of Scripture and the exposition of it to follow a little later this morning. Before we begin looking at this text, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the word and for those here to partake of it. We pray your blessing on this hour. We pray as we go through your precious word that you would minister to our minds and hearts in a very personal way, and for that we'll thank you in Jesus' name, amen. There is a tomb of a man who died in 1852, which has become a national shrine in Paris, France. This man is deemed to be a military legend and genius whose ambition it was at one time to dominate Europe. His name was Napoleon, and we know him as Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon wanted to control the world, and he waged a series of wars in the 1800s against a variety of European nations to control it. He was, by all accounts, somewhat of a power-crazed man. His goal seemed to be within reach, that is, until Waterloo. In 1815, he organized an army of 72,000 men to confront the English, the Dutch, and the Prussian forces, and for three days, the war raged on. When it was all over, Napoleon had lost 31,000 men, and he was out of business. Waterloo was his downfall. Waterloo brought him to his end. When you come to Daniel chapter 5, you come to the Waterloo for the family of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. Daniel 5 is the place where Babylon goes down, but it's also the place where God shows he's God. Now, one of the most complicated problems in the entire book of Daniel is the controversy that surrounds the individual that is named in verse 1. It's the individual who takes center stage in Daniel 5. It's Belshazzar. The thing that makes this complicated is the fact that many historical documents 
didn't name him as being a Babylonian king. In fact, histories such as Josephus or Barossus suggest that Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C., then he was replaced by other kings, Merodach, Neraglissar, Laborosor Arkad, and Nabonidus. But nowhere is the name Belshazzar given. And as a result, the book of Daniel has come under attack as not being a book that is historically accurate. And for many years, the book of Daniel was alleged to be an unreliable book. That is until 1854, in excavations that were being conducted by Henry Rollison, and he discovered a cylinder which contained the name Belshazzar, in which he was called the son of Nabonidus. Now, it's known that Nabonidus left Babylon for a while to fight with the Medes and Persians, he had a resort area in Tama of Arabia, and he stayed there. And during that time, he appointed his son Belshazzar to be king in his absence. It was like a co-regency. Belshazzar was a real person in the royal line of Nebuchadnezzar who did reign about 553 B.C., about nine years after Nebuchadnezzar's death. Belshazzar's mother, Nitrochris, was Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. So in all reality, what you have here is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar reigning, whose name is Belshazzar. When the story of chapter 5 opens up, it's about 70 years after Jerusalem had been taken captive in chapter 1. We may recall that in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel predicted that Nebuchadnezzar would rise to power. He was the head of gold, but there would come after him another kingdom which would be inferior to the Babylonian kingdom. This chapter fulfills that prediction. About 25 years have elapsed since the events of chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar got his brain back after he went insane for seven years and he ate grass like a beast of the field. You have about 25 years of time that goes forward from the time of chapter 4 to the time of chapter 5. And during those 25 years, Nebuchadnezzar died. And Nebuchadnezzar was succeeded in 562 B.C. by evil Moradoc, who's named in 2 Kings. He was killed by Neraglissar in 560 B.C. He was succeeded by his son-in-law, who died in 556 B.C. And he was succeeded by his son, Laborosor Arkad, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, who was assassinated in less than a year. And then he was succeeded by Nabonidus in 556 B.C., who reigned from 556 to 539 B.C., who conquered the Medes. So Belshazzar, when you begin reading Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, is Nabonidus' son, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Now what all of this history tells us, this mess, that you have one who killed another, and he was succeeded and assassinated by another, is that when you don't put God first, when you don't follow through on what God wants you to do, your whole family will end up a big mess. And that is exactly what happened in the history of Nebuchadnezzar's family. And in this chapter, Belshazzar really messes up. He's a proud, successful, arrogant kind of guy, but he crosses a major line. And when he does, God says, I've had enough. God basically says, I'm pulling the plug on your reign. I'm pulling the plug on your life. The point I want you to see is when leaders become so arrogant that they secularize that which God has held sacred, God eventually will remove that leadership, and in the process, he'll replace it with faithful people. He'll elevate faithful people to positions of honor. Now, this chapter, as we'll go through it, is a warning to anyone who thinks that God just sits idly by watching arrogant people make a mockery of sacred things. 
We live in a day and age in which this is happening. There's a mockery being made of a marriage between a man and a woman. There's a mockery of worship. Put rock bands in church. And any who think God is just sitting idly by, not taking notice of this, are very foolish. Although God's judgment does not come immediately, rarely does God's judgment come immediately. It always comes eventually. And that's what you see in Daniel chapter 5. Now there are five main headings I want to draw to your attention that bring this chapter to life. Heading number one, the party of King Belshazzar, verses one to four. Now I want to give the background of this party because the historical background of this Babylonian party is bizarre. The Medes and the Persians had already captured Belshazzar's father and all the surrounding territory around the city of Babylon. So this is not new news that the Medes and Persians are coming against the Babylonian empire. This was a known fact. As all of that was taking place, Belshazzar is so proud and arrogant that he throws a wine-drinking feast and party. Perhaps he wanted to bolster support or a false sense of security around the key leaders of his regime that everything was okay. Apparently, as he sat in the walls, behind the walls of the Babylonian city, and in his palace, he felt secure. And that's how people in sin often do feel. People that are rebellious against God often become desensitized to coming judgment. They don't think it's a real threat to them. They just live in some delusional world. They think they have plenty of time to get things right with God. They don't need to worry about anything. And that was the way it was for Belshazzar. Verse 1 indicates that Belshazzar was drinking apparently from some kind of pedestal position because he was in the presence of a thousand. A thousand of his key leaders were there. When archaeologists excavated the site, they discovered a huge hall that was 60 feet wide, 172 feet long. That translates into a hall that's 30 yards wide and nearly 60 yards long, about three-quarters of the size of a football field. And there was a big banquet hall in which everybody was boozing and laughing, and that's where this was taking place. If you want to put this in some perspective, that's about the dimensions of the main section of the White House. This was one huge banquet room, and apparently Belshazzar sat on a pedestal, kind of like a platform, overlooking all of the people that were there. Verse 2 indicates that he gave orders for them to go get the sacred gold and silver vessels that had been taken from the Temple of Jerusalem, and bring them to the party. It wasn't enough that they're partying, but bring them to the party so that his nobles, his wives, his concubines could all drink out of them. Belshazzar is basically saying, I can do what I want to do. I'm not afraid of any power. I'm not afraid of anyone. I do not fear any God of Israel. And I want you to notice that verse 2 says he did this when he tasted the wine. Verse 2 begins when Belshazzar tasted the wine. It may mean it was just before he was drunk, he did it before he was completely drunk. In other words, he was rational when he made this decision. He did it before he no longer could taste the wine. In other words, he knew what he was doing. When he ordered these people to go get the sacred things, there was a big uproar, the crowds cheering, the crowds praising gods of gold and silver and other things. As Wearsby said, Belshazzar was indulgent, indifferent, and irreverent. He was not content just to have a big bash and praise his idols. He wanted to insult the God of the Bible in the process. He wanted to actually insult the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He wanted to rob God of any possible glory that he might have. And to God, that was absolutely detestable. 
Years ago, before I came to faith in Jesus Christ, I used to work in radio, secular radio, and as a result of my position, I was hired to do various dances and parties and nightclub acts. There are two that stand out in my mind because they were held in churches. I wasn't saved at the time, but I felt queasy about being there. These were drunken parties in churches. I was playing secular rock music. People are dancing and drinking. They're inebriated. This is a place that's supposed to be sacred. As I've thought about that and thought about this text, I realized that was detestable to God, something totally sacrilegious. It's no wonder that one of the churches in the Kalamazoo area is now for sale. Which brings us to the second heading, the response of God. Verse 5 tells us that suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged. Suddenly there appeared the fingers of a man's hand that wrote on the plastered wall. The exact spot where it was written is it was opposite the lampstand. Some theologians have speculated this was the lampstand. It was that seven-branch candlestick that had been taken from Jerusalem's temple that he had standing there on that pedestal. In any case, it would not be missed because this area was lit up. And it wouldn't surprise me if that weren't the candlestand that was there because we know that if you're going to understand something from the Word of God, you must go or be connected to the place where the Word of God is taught. And in the Old Testament economy, that was the temple. In the New Testament, it is the church. Now this must have been a powerful scene this banquet room would have quieted down as this mysterious hand wrote on the wall. God no longer writes things on walls. He's not going to show up here one day and just have a hand that starts writing things on the plaster on the wall. But it is clear in Scripture there are some things that are being recorded that God is still in the process of recording. We know there are at least three books that are written in by God. There is, first of all, the book of sinful condemnatory works. They're called the works books in Revelation 20. And if one gets before God and says, I think I've measured up to your righteousness, God says, I'll call up the works books of your life. I'll show you every place you violated my law and your mouth will be shut. We know according to Revelation 20, there's the book of life. A person who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ has their name blotted out, washed out of the works books, and now goes into the book of life and is guaranteed everlasting life. We also know, according to Malachi 3, there's a book called the Book of Remembrances of the good deeds of the people of God. There's apparently a record that's being kept of people who are believers in what they're doing to either earn or lose rewards. So we know that God isn't writing on walls today, but he is recording those that are in a right relationship with him. And people may have their momentary pleasures for a while, but God will always have the final word. Someone may think that they're in control of everything right now. God says, no, you're not in control. I'm in control. You stay in rebellion against me, and you will be a fool, and you will receive my judgment. The third heading is the reaction of Belshazzar, verses 6 to 9. I like what one writer said. Belshazzar set an all-time record for sobering up. When he was at this banquet hall and he had been drinking heavily wine, this sobered him up in a hurry. The smirk was wiped from his face and from his heart. And there are five main reactions in verses 6 to 9. First of all, you have a reaction on his face. It became pale. The language in Hebrew would indicate he had good color to his face. After all, he'd been drinking some wine, and that usually puts a little color in somebody's face. It drained right out of his face. 
He literally looked putrid in his face. It also says he had a reaction of his thoughts. Verse 6 says he was alarmed. Then thirdly, he had a reaction of his body. His hip joints went slack and his knees started knocking. Verse 6 tells us he actually went limp when he saw this happen. He was having a difficult time even sitting or standing because the hip joints were the power, the strength was gone. It had drained from him. And he looked down at his knees and they were shaking. His fourth reaction is the reaction of his voice. Verses 7 to 8, he calls all of his wise men, all of his religious people to give some interpretation. He said, I'll give a whole lot of money and great wealth and riches to anybody who can do this. But they couldn't do it. In verse 9, the reaction of his thoughts and face again. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler. Ladies and gentlemen, when God's judgment comes, those that have a guilty conscience will literally shake in their legs. When it's time to face God and someone has lived their lives in rebellion against God, time's up, it's too late. And now it's time to give an account and that will be a fearful moment. This proud, puffed up king was now a shivering, shaking, sniveling coward and there was nothing that he could do to stop the judgment of God. One may strut around in life as if there's no coming day of judgment. One may strut around saying, I have nothing to worry about, but I'll tell you this. The moment God calls one to face him, one who's lived their lives in rebellion against his word and will will break down as a shivering, shaking, sniveling coward. There will be no proud people when it comes time to meet God. It's just a shame. Belshazzar hadn't listened to Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, who said, as we concluded last week's study, I want you to praise the God of Israel. It's just a shame that he didn't heed the advice of what his grandfather told him because he wouldn't be in this predicament if only he would have listened to his parents. I fear for some young people today. They refuse to listen to godly counsel from their parents and they think they're getting away with their rebellion. Nobody sees, got all the time in the world, don't need to make decisions now to be right with God. They are facing a ferocious day of judgment, just like Belshazzar. Which brings us to the fourth heading, the reaction of the queen. Verses 10 to 12, the queen entered the banquet hall. Josephus says this was Belshazzar's grandmother. This was Nebuchadnezzar's wife. It's quite obvious that when this happened, Daniel was not present. Daniel was apparently not one of the thousand that got the invitation to the party. He was kind of living his life in obscurity. At this point in time, Daniel's old in life. He's not part of the high echelon. Daniel's not part of the cabinet elite. In fact, historians tell us that after the death of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel was banished and sent away from the throne. He'd been out of sight. He had been out of the political loop for about 10 years. Daniel wasn't one of the in-group, one of the counseling group to Belshazzar. Belshazzar figured he was high and mighty. He didn't need Daniel. So Daniel was kind of on the back burner. But during that 10-year period of time, when he was kind of out of the mainstream of things, he was still a powerful man of God. He was living a quiet, faithful life. He was still studying scriptures as later passages in Daniel will reveal to us. And Daniel was still learning about God. He was still a very faithful man of God, even though he isn't in the limelight of things. He's still highly esteemed by God. And there are two observations I want to make about this. Just because some people are in the loop doesn't mean they're right with God. 
Just because you have people that know how to play political games to manipulate their way into high positions, whether it be in an organization or a church, doesn't automatically mean that that person has a heart that's really walking with the Lord. Secondly, just because one is not in the loop does not mean they are not right with God. Daniel was not part of this echelon group, the thousand key people at the party, and yet this man was the one who was right with God. I am convinced when we get before the Lord, there will be many who are just quiet believers who live faithful lives that will be honored in eternity because of their quiet, dignified faithfulness. And they were never in the limelight, but they loved the Lord. And the queen entered and told the king, there is one who can unravel this. There's one who can figure all of this out. His name is Daniel. (laughs) I find this interesting. He has, according to the text, a thousand of his nobles. He's got a thousand of his wisest people that are surrounding him. And once again, you've got a woman who has a better grasp of reality, a woman who has a better grasp of the things of God than those thousand men. And that's something that you see from time to time. There are women who often see and sense God's truth better than some men. I've seen that. I've seen that in marriages in which a woman has a better grasp on what's right and a woman has a better grasp on the Word of God than a husband. One time I had a husband in another ministry brag, boy, my wife knows the Bible. And I said, why don't you? And then he kind of said, well, I guess I need to get to know the Bible more. I said, yes, you do. That's too bad that she knows it better than you. It doesn't say a whole lot for you. You have the responsibility to carefully study the scriptures and learn the scriptures. But this dear woman knew who could unravel the truth. God can surface the power of his man in situations that are bizarre. Now think about this. Here's a wine-drinking party. It's immoral. Many believe this was like an orgy scene. And God said, I want my man at this party. And so he oversees it to get him there Because God had so moved at this party, now it was Daniel, his leadership, his knowledge, his wisdom that is needed and wanted. Which brings us to the fifth heading. The king asked Daniel to read and interpret the inscription. Now, as in all other episodes, the wisdom of secular leaders cannot figure out or solve matters that pertain to God's future, and they cannot even figure out things that are happening in our day. Human, godless leaders are in a fog as to what is actually going on when it comes to God's eschatology. It takes someone that's strong in the Word to be able to figure out what in the world is going on. So you are living in a world in which most people don't have a clue as to why Israel in the Middle East is in the news. You are living in a world in which most people can't make heads or tails of what is really going on in Iraq. You are living in a world in which most people cannot figure out why are we thinking about the United Nations and what becomes so important about this. You don't know people that understand why is there a rise in oil prices? Why is there a rise in homosexuality? Why is there such a major emphasis on a one-world government or the World Council of Churches? Why is this? And they're in a fog as to why that is. But people that know the word, people that are strong in God's truth, can give some answers to some of those questions. You may think 
You'll really be needed and accepted if you just go along with everybody else, go to the party, slap them on the back, and just be one of the good old boys. The fact is, you'll be much more powerful if you're a faithful person of the Lord and you become known as one who knows the truth of God and can defend it. Because if you are faithful to God and if you know the word of God, eventually somebody's going to come ask you. They're going to ask you, can you explain some of this stuff that's going on? People who stand for the word of God get a bad rap today. But sooner or later, when things begin to fall apart, one who knows the word of God will be summoned. That is the way it was for Daniel. Let's get Daniel in here. He can read and interpret what's going on. In 1990, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. It affected the entire world. In fact, ultimately, in the early 90s, we went to war, our first war, with Iraq. In that war, there were people that were asking questions about, man, could this be the end? Could this be Armageddon? Is this prophecy coming to light? In Dallas, Texas, said a man who is now with the Lord, a dear man of God, a quiet, humble, faithful man. His name was John Wolver. John Wolvert has quietly dedicated his life to studying the Bible. His particular expertise, field of study, is biblical prophecy. ABC learned that there was a man in the world who made his life studying biblical things. So they called up Dr. Wolvert, put him on a plane, flew him to New York, set him up on national news, and asked him, what are the biblical ramifications of all of this? When the world began to fall apart, and it wanted answers to some questions, it turned to a quiet, faithful man of God who's now with the Lord. His name was John Wolvert. You see, you'll make a greater impact when you're quietly faithful to the Lord. Sooner or later, that'll draw attention. The sixth heading is Daniel answers the king by rehearsing what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He says there in verse 17, Daniel said, Keep your gifts. I don't want them. Don't you remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, your grandfather? He says, Nebuchadnezzar had been given authority by God and he left God out. He became proud, so God humbled him. He was so arrogant that he humbled him. He ate grass like beasts of the field. And basically the reason why Daniel's saying that to him is because that is precisely what God was going to do to Belshazzar. Now, in the time of prosperity, people who tell the truth of God are often viewed as what one writer said, spoil sports of our society. But when calamity hits... It's the society that needs the message of the person who knows the word of God. Anyone who proudly rebels against God's word will eventually be humbled. That's historical fact. That's historical truth. You may think you're the one who's bucking the odds and getting away with proud rebellion. You need to know this. There is a track record in scripture. If you proudly rebel against God, sooner or later, God tracks you down for that rebellion and that sin. Don't think for a moment that you're getting away with it. And when Daniel apparently reminds Belshazzar of this problem that his grandfather had, Nebuchadnezzar, he's saying, why didn't you let that illustration affect you? Which brings us to the seventh heading. Daniel informs Belshazzar that he'd not humbled himself before God, verses 22 to 23, yet you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. Daniel is not telling him something here to enhance a friendship. He's talking to him like an inspired judge. Belshazzar knew what God had done to Nebuchadnezzar, but it didn't phase him in his life. He figured, ah, I got time, big deal. 
He proudly exalted himself. He even dared to take the sacred vessels that God used in his temple, something Nebuchadnezzar never did, and he used them at his own wine-drinking orgy party. He had not glorified God. He demeaned God. He had actually done something that was detestable to God, and Daniel was not afraid to tell the truth of God to this godless king who could sentence Daniel to die. And that's the way it is for true men of God. They won't back down from presenting truth just because people don't like it. Real men of God don't back down from truth just because the situation is not conducive to it. Daniel was not a milquetoast preacher. He aims his message straight at Belshazzar even though it means his end. I've heard many people say, I don't like that preacher because he was preaching at me. Well, so what? What if he was? What if you needed it? Is that bad? If God is speaking through a text of Scripture to someone who's handling that passage accurately and is speaking to you, don't you think that perhaps God could be saying, hey, I'm talking to you, I'm trying to convict you through the power of the Spirit of God? That's what Daniel does. He looks this man straight in the eyes, he tells him the truth, which brings us to the eighth heading. Daniel interprets the inscription for Belshazzar, verses 24 to 28. Daniel gave a word-by-word breakdown of what was written, and I want you to notice that. Don't gloss over that. Daniel approaches the Word of God word for word. And I want you to notice he approaches it in the exact order God gave it. He doesn't jump around, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin. Actually, it's Huparsin in Hebrew. He doesn't jump around here. He's giving it in the exact order that God gave it. He doesn't go from one area to another. He systematically takes Belshazzar through every word that God wrote on that wall. And that is the way the word of God is to be handled. Mene, mene, counted, counted. I've summed it up for you. I've counted your life, Belshazzar. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances. And Uparsin, it's the plural of Peres, you are divided. Two powers, the Medes and the Persians, are going to take you over. God found Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom lacking, and he was taking it away and giving it to the Medes and the Persians. God weighs people's lives. He weighs what leadership does. And if what they're doing is wrong, he'll eventually intervene and put an end to it. Now, you and I need to understand that we've all been weighed in the balances of God, and we've been found lacking. The fact of the matter is, compared to the righteousness of God, we've all fallen short. We've already been weighed in the balances. We're born dead in trespasses and sins. The balances have already been established. Our only hope is to believe on Jesus Christ and have that sentence reversed. And if you've not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, don't postpone that. Because you don't know when God can say to you, this is your last day on earth, just like he did to Belshazzar. Just this past week, Peter Jennings went into eternity. Do you think he cares today about newscasts? I'll tell you, the only thing that matters now is whether or not he trusted the Lord. I had the privilege back in the early 90s of writing Mr. Jennings, and he has heard the gospel. He's seen it. I don't know what he did with it. But the fact of the matter is, the only thing that matters to him now is that I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because the balances were against me. The ninth heading is Belshazzar rewards Daniel and is killed, verses 29 to 30. 
Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler of the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. God had his hand on Daniel, and he also had his hand against Belshazzar. On the same night that Daniel is honored, Belshazzar is killed. This is the last official act of Belshazzar. He honors a faithful servant of the Lord. Look, we need to understand our destiny, our life breath, is in the hands of God. And none of us know how long we have. God can give life and God can take life. And he does it in his time, in his way, and I've seen it at all different age classifications where God says, this one goes into eternity, this one goes into eternity, and you and I can't stop it. What we need to be doing as we wait for the moment when he says concerning us, now it's your turn, is to walk humbly and faithfully in a right relationship with him. What a bizarre party this is. It starts out festive. It ends frightening. That's the way it's going to be for many people, ladies and gentlemen. I'm afraid in this world, life to them is a party. There's nothing sacred anymore. There's nothing solemn anymore. There's nothing God-honoring anymore. Things seem to be going good for some of these people. It's like it's a big drinking orgy of a party, and it's all going to end quick. And I believe the end of the church age is very near. The judgment of the Lord draws nigh, and he will humble the proud. He'll break the arrogant. He'll crush those who've exalted themselves. What Daniel's message to Nebuchadnezzar and to Belshazzar was, humble yourself before the Lord so that he doesn't have to break you down. Do not continue in proud rebellion against God because there will come a moment when he would say, this is the day you face me. May we pray. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, We've been tried in the balances, in the scales of God, and we've all been found lacking. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Your only hope is to get out of that sin dilemma through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, don't go another second without trusting Jesus Christ because you don't know how long you have in life. I don't either. So right now in this moment, you pray something like this. God, I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that. I humbly acknowledge that. It's honest. I thank you that Christ died for me, and right now I'm placing all of my faith in him to be my Savior. Our Father, we thank you so much for the precious word. We pray that you would use your word to do what work you need to do in any of us, and we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.